Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakia. Welcome to the ninth episode of Back Talk Doc. Thank you for taking time to tune in. I cannot believe we've uh, come up on this episode. Our first few months have been real exciting. Uh, before I get started with today's guest, I want to take a moment and thank you, the listeners, as we've hit nearly hit our 1500th download of our episodes, which really for me is quite exciting. Again, our goal on Backtalk Doc is to educate people about all things related to their spine uh, so you can make informed decisions about your your health care. So number one, thank you for that. It really inspires me to continue to put the work in and get good information out to you. Today's topic is one that we encounter routinely, and that is the idea of spinal injections to help alleviate back pain and sciatic type pain. And I have a real genuine expert colleague of mine, Dr. Andrew Sumich today, who's going to really break down all things related to spinal injections for us and give us the true information and help kind of clear up some of the misinformation that's out there. Andrew, who we like to call Turtle, and I've known him for quite a while now, did his residency at Carolina's Medical Center, and and I had the pleasure of training with him during residency. Um, He then went on to do a fellowship at the Interventional Spine and Musculoskeletal Medicine uh, Orthopedic Specialist of the Carolinas and has been with Carolina Neurosurgeon and Spine Associates ever since. So I, I really enjoy practicing with Turtle and uh, consider his knowledge to be uh, indispensable. And he's really been a good mentor for me in my career. So Turtle, thank you for taking the time and welcome to the show. Thank you, Sanjeev. Great to be here. And thank you for the kind words. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I want to point out to the listeners is that you have done a fellowship in interventional spine care. And I know many people understand medical school and residency, but can you tell patients out there who don't really understand what a fellowship is, what that entailed for you on a day-to-day basis and how long that lasts? It was an extra, in this case, an extra 14 months of training in a little bit more specific area of interest within the broader range of our specialty, which is, of course, physical medicine and rehabilitation. So my interest was in musculoskeletal and interventional spine. And so I spent those 14 months with Dave O'Brien and Winston-Salem doing that fellowship. And it is very much kind of hands-on, patient care-driven. If I were, if I remember, I think I probably started out, you know, running my own clinic probably five or six half days a week because that was something I would have been comfortable with for residency. And then shadowing him in injections for those first, you know, four to five weeks, and he slowly lets the reins off until you're by the end of that 14 month, you're essentially having your own practice under his uh, umbrella. So it's a lot of supervision by experts in the field to teach you how to perform these procedures safely and accurately. Correct. And and it's, a lot of it's hands-on, just the mechanics of doing it. It's supplemented with didactics and reading and, uh, and other internal clubs and other type of sort of more book educational things that are necessary. But the real meat of the fellowship is kind of hands-on training and having somebody to show you how to do it and somebody with you to guide you as you're doing your first one. I know when we were in residency, we went through quite a bit 
for physical medicine and rehab from brain injury and spinal cord injury. Can you explain to our listeners what kind of directed you down the path of spine care and the fellowship in particular? The, the answer to that is probably further back in medical school and taking physical medicine and rehabilitation to begin with. I, um, I had this idea, well, at the, I guess the top of the decision tree was more, do you want to be a surgeon or not? And I didn't have uh, great experiences for me in my medical school rotation. So I kind of knew early on I didn't want to be you know, like orthopedics or general surgery or neurosurgery for that matter. Uh, I also was kind of interested in, at the time, what I would have called sports medicine. And, and probably what I was really talking about was musculoskeletal medicine. And, and there's a couple of ways to do that. One was through internal medicine or family practice. Another was through physical medicine and rehabilitation. My rotation during that drew me to physical medicine and rehabilitation. I found it more interesting, more engaging, and kind of more useful to me. And then as we got into residency, to your question, there's this musculoskeletal interventional spine, which was kind of lumped together, and, and especially at the time. And I did get drawn more to some procedural hands-on things. And so that's how I ended up kind of more interventional spine. I think it's real interesting how our field is so diverse that even when you subspecialize like you've done, I think that training we had in residency still serves us on a daily basis as we evaluate patients just to make sure we're not too boxed into certain diagnoses. Um, So, you know, I'm really glad you went the route you did and it's, it's been really great practicing with you. Let's dive into our topic of the day, uh, which is spinal injections, and in particular, epidural steroid injections. Certainly, there's a lot of press about epidural injections each year, and the recommendations and guidelines on how to perform these and take safety measures really evolves over the course of months to years. So as it pertains to lumbar disc herniations and low back pain, with or without leg pain, describe to the listeners where you see the role for spinal injections in particular. The role for injections really has to be separated from the back and leg pain part of things. The reality is, particularly epidural steroid injections, they don't do a great job for back pain. They can help and they do an okay job. But where I think there's much more valuable value is for the leg pain, what we would call radiculopathy or that pinched nerve type pain going down the leg. The epidural steroid injections are much more useful and effective for that. If you're listening at home, that's a key point to write down that the epidural steroid injections work far better for the radiating pain down your leg than for classic chronic low back pain. So I'm glad you recognize that. Um, Even backing up a step, I'm sure you get this question a lot. Uh, Can you clarify for our listeners what exactly an epidural steroid injection is and how this may contrast with quote-unquote epidurals that are given to women during the childbirth process? Sure. So an epidural steroid injection is placing steroid into the epidural space through an injection. It's typically done under fluoroscopic guidance, which is x-ray guidance, and with, with the purpose being putting the medication into the epidural space at a particular level to help relieve symptoms and potentially help with diagnostic information. The, the, and we will refer to those as epidurals. What is also referred to as epidurals is the epidurals that a woman would, lead, would would receive in labor during delivery. And clearly, these are different with different purposes and different intentions and different techniques. The biggest difference is nobody's in labor, so that makes things a lot easier. The purpose of the pregnancy epidural or the labor and delivery epidural is to 
deliver anesthetic over an extended course of time, essentially the labor duration. So that is done by inserting a catheter into the epidural space and leaving it in there to distribute the anesthetic medicine over a course of time. Um, So one, that's a bigger needle in order to access that space. So it's a little more traumatic experience. And the other really big difference is is the use of the fluoroscopy or the x-ray. In our case, for, for pain procedures, we can use it, and it makes things a lot easier on the patient and the physician. In the case of pregnancy, they can't use it because they do not want to radiate the baby. And so it's done through good technique, but still more challenging because it's done through feel as opposed to visualization. Yeah, so it's a blinded technique versus a guided technique, and there's not typically any delivery of steroids uh, during the labor and delivery process. So that's that's a good clarification. Uh, thank you for offering that up. Um, piggyback on that, what are the different techniques and approaches commonly used to inject steroids into the epidural space? Again, we're talking about injections for pain relief. Um, there are two main categories, which I'm really trying to get at, and that's one that's called the transframinal approach, and then the other category is called the interlaminar approach. So again, see if you can break this down for the average Joe who really doesn't have any idea what I just said. Sure. The, and so it is a good explanation. It's all about getting medicine into the epidural space, just how are you going to get it, get it there. Uh, and there's, there's two, and it, it's really those two approaches are about which opening of the spinal canal are you going to use to access the epidural space and inject the medication. The interlaminar approach is more of a midline approach. And as the anatomy of the spine, there are little openings or little windows between the back part of the spine where you can access the epidural space with the proper technique and inject medication in there. The medicine tends to stay midline. It does spread over multiple levels. So it can cover multi-level uh, pathologies. That's one of its advantages. The transferaminal approach is using the opening on the side of the spinal canal. It's the same opening that the nerve exits the spine prior to going down your leg. So it's not a midline approach. It's a little bit more off to the side coming in at an oblique angle. And it actually uses kind of the opening where the nerve is and the nerve itself is kind of a bit of a conduit to travel the medicine into the epidural space that way. And you may have shared this analogy with me, Turtle. You think it's a good one where it's comparing almost like using a shotgun versus using a rifle in terms of how specific you can be with where you want to place the medicine? That's exactly right. I use that regularly with my patients, it's, um, it, 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 that, that transferamal approach allows you to get a singular level and also a singular side. Uh, and so particularly in, in one-sided unilateral symptoms with a specific pattern, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great procedure. Do you think there's a significant difference in terms of risk or complications between the two approaches? I don't think there's a significant difference. I think there are different potential complications and risk. I think they both are, are, are safe procedures when done with the right equipment and right technique, but they carry, they carry, they used to carry the risk. For the most part, the more one technique is used, the more potential complications are going to be. And I, I think the, the decision-making should be driven by the symptoms that the patient have and what is the best injection choice to treat those symptoms as opposed to one being 
just exclusively safer than the other. All right. So that's a good breakdown of the interlaminar versus a transferaminal approach. I would also add that there's maybe a slightly different risk in terms of the risk of a spinal fluid leak based upon which technique you're choosing. But at the end of the day, what he said is is accurate. You really want to have someone who knows how to evaluate the MRI and your symptoms and clinical presentation. And then the second aspect of that is the skill of the provider performing the technique correctly really makes all the difference. Another common kind of question I get from patients and even referring docs and the surgeons in the group that probably warrant some clarification is maybe the difference between a transforaminal epidural steroid injection, or as we call it, a TF, ESI, versus a selective nerve root block. Can you spread some clarity on these two things? Sure. Well, first, they're really close, and, and they, they sometimes are used interchangeably, although technically that's, that's not accurate. So with the transforaminal approach, again, it is using that opening on the side of the spine where the nerve exits to access the epidural space. So you would actually place the needle under uh, under imaging guidance, inject, and typically watch the contrast and eventually the medication track up the nerve into the epidural space. So it is getting medication onto the nerve root itself, which is kind of the selective nerve root part of it. The medication is also going to the epidural space, so it could potentially spread to the, the level, typically a level above it. A selective nerve root block is putting the medication only on that singular nerve root. So staying a, a little bit outside of the spinal canal, outside of where that nerve exits, and coating the medication onto the nerve root itself and not allowing it to to trickle in or flow into the epidural space. Okay, very good. And that can be more useful when you're trying to diagnose exactly where the pain is coming from. And in particular, the neurosurgeons in our group really like that. It helps them sort out what is a relevant finding on an MRI versus one that doesn't really correlate with the symptoms and pain. Correct. Yeah. Anything else you want to add to that? No, it, it, the selective nerve root block, uh, it was almost exclusively used in a, in a diagnostic setting. Otherwise, the transforaminal would be the more common thing to use for therapeutic purposes. Okay. So now let's pretend that I am, let's say, 55-year-old patient of yours and you've scheduled me for an injection, uh, let's say an, an L5 transforaminal epidural injection or you're trying to schedule me and walk me through a couple things. Number one, and this is for our listeners as well, let's talk about what types of medications the patient can expect to have delivered during the injection. And then number two, can you give us kind of a simple explanation for what someone may feel while going through the injection? Sure. The, um, so the, the, the medications used is there's a local anesthetic, which is uh, typically 1% lidocaine, which is the same kind of thing that you might get at the dentist to numb up your, your, your gums or your mouth. Uh, and that is done just to the skin and soft tissue uh, at the injection site. Uh, once the needle is placed, then you inject some kind of imaging contrast, typically, typically Omnipake or Isobuse, the same kind of contrast that you might use for a CT scan. Um, and so that, that is injected as well. And then the kind of meat of the injection, which is is the is the steroid um, for inter for all epidural injections, regardless of technique, uh, it's recommended to use uh, dexamethasone or a similar uh, corticosteroid, mostly because of its 
uh, molecular size and safety profile. Um, and then with the steroid, uh, some people will mix that with some lidocaine uh, as well, just for patient comfort. Other people will mix that with just normal saline. And the purpose of that is just to get a larger volume distributing into the epidural space rather than just a single cc of steroid. And then the big question that's on everyone's mind who is considering a spinal injection, and I want to get your perspective on this, is the potential risk for a spinal cord injury. Really, I want to just stick to the low back injections um, as it pertains to our topic today. But how do you go through that discussion with your patients? You know, technically with the lumbar spine, particularly below L2, um, there's no risk of spinal cord injury because, as you know, Sanjeev, the spinal cord doesn't go that low. Correct. But that's not what people are asking. People are asking, you know, the risk of potential neurologic injury. And that is a, is a fair and important question. Um, it is, again, it's, it's with the fluoroscopic guidance and imaging guidance, it is very, very low risk. And with the proper technique, it should be almost nil. Um, you should be able to see where the important structures are, at least where they are relative to the, to the imaging that's obtained during the procedure. And as you inject the contrast, it will outline nerve roots and, and vessels, which are another important thing we want to avoid. The, the you know, so the, if, you, if you think of the ways, like how would you, how would you cause this kind of neurologic injury? So there could be direct trauma to a neural structure to the nerve root. The reality is anybody that's had uh, an injection before when the needle gotten close to the nerve, you know it. It'll give you that kind of zinger, almost like a hitting your funny bone on steroids. And so it will, and if you hear the patient's feedback, you can reposition before you, you do any kind of uh, any kind of damage, physical damage to the nerve. Uh, a second way that would be concerning is injecting into a vessel that would somehow occlude and stop blood flow from going to a neural structure to the, to the nerve root or the lower part of the spinal cord. And that's why it's important why we inject the contrast and the live fluoroscopy to make sure there is no vascular uptake before we inject any of the medication. It's also why we use that particular steroid, dexamethasone, as its safety profile because of its small molecular size. Uh, minimizes the chance of any kind of vascular injury to a neural structure. Uh, the third one we worry about, and you touched on this when contrasting the interlaminar injections with uh, transferaminal, is, uh, or I, we should have touched on it, I didn't, was uh, some kind of hematoma, which is basically internal bleeding. So if you were to, and that, and that would, you know, if we're doing that transferaminal approach and there's internal bleeding or hematoma, it would be outside of the spinal canal. So it would be uncomfortable. It would hurt um, and probably have some local swelling, but no real long-term effects. If that same hematoma was actually in the spinal canal where it's a closed space, you can imagine if that got bigger and bigger, it could cause compression to the nerves that are in that same closed space, in this case, the spinal canal. That could potentially be cause some neural injury, but that is very, very rare. Those are the things we think about. And I think because we think about and are looking for them is why they rarely, if ever, happen. Now, that's an excellent breakdown. And I wanted to talk about that topic today. I think we should talk about it to inform and educate listeners. And really the take home from what Turtle just broke down for you is that there are multiple strategies that we utilize to mitigate and lessen the risk, uh, mainly the use of contrast dye during the procedure 
plus the use of the proper steroid preparation, which has a long track record of safety. And that when done properly with these risk mitigation techniques and someone who's trained and knows what they're doing, I think it's something that you should be aware of if you're a listener considering one, but I don't think you should necessarily be scared of it. And I always like to compare treatment options and look at their relative risk. If you have just hurt your back or have some sciatic pain and it happened a week ago, then and you haven't tried any medication or therapy, then the risk of an injection is certainly greater than those conservative things. But if you've been through several weeks of conservative treatment, you're still having a lot of problems, and now we're comparing the risk of an injection versus a surgery, I think you could feel a little better about taking that risk. So um, that was an excellent kind of uh, breakdown of that topic. Uh, Moving past that, though, when you have patients that come to your clinic and you're considering an injection, what are your deciding factors when trying to determine if someone needs or benefit from an epidural steroid injection versus moving them on to see one of our neurosurgical partners for consideration of, let's say, a microdisc surgery? Sure. I, I've always thought, and I present to my patients often this way, that there are, there are three potential reasons to do more in terms of, of treatment. And more might be, at the beginning, just showing up at the doctor, uh, or it might be, getting an MRI, or in this case, it might be an injection, or even proceeding on the, the surgical uh, consultation. And those three, a couple, one of those is sort of outside of the patient's control. And that is if there is rapid or at least progressive neurologic loss. So somebody has lost control of their bowel or bladder. Somebody has weakness, significant weakness in their leg, and, it, and it's rapidly progressing. I mean, there isn't a whole lot of discussion. Honestly, we don't see a lot of that in our uh, practice because one, thankfully, it's not very common. And two, they usually end up in the emergency room. But if that kind of thing is going on, those people need to be seen quickly, have an MRI, and you know, depending on the results of the MRI, likely rapid surgical uh, intervention. And so those aren't really the people we're talking about. The two other ones, Two other reasons to kind of do more, meaning jump to surgery in this case versus proceeding with with an injection, is that the symptoms and, and however those are manifesting itself with pain or oftentimes the, the secondary part of that is, is how it's affecting somebody's quality of life, mood, relationships, is that they just can't take it anymore. The pain is so severe, things are so upside down that they don't have the desire or the time to, to do an injection and wait for a response. You know, that seven of 10 days that we like to, to see uh, that maximum response. And they just, it hurts too bad. I can't do it. I just want to get it fixed. So that will, I'll steer somebody straight to surgery. And then the third one is a little bit tougher to identify and a little bit softer endpoint. That is the person that's had the persistent symptom just hasn't gotten better. So typically those people would have had, we would have done the injection or two and maybe it's helped some, but not all the way. And it's not that they can't handle their symptoms. They're just tired of handling the, handling those symptoms and they just want to have a more definitive response. Yeah, let me elaborate on that second point, uh, which I had forgot to mention prior. I'm glad you brought it up, is that if you are considering a spinal injection for your pain, please understand that often the relief does take a little bit of time. So anywhere from seven to 10 days or even up to a couple of weeks. So it's not necessarily a quick fix. You will get some brief immediate relief from the anesthetic and the injection, but then it does take a little time for the corticosteroid in the injection to help calm down that inflammatory nerve root response. So as as Turtle mentioned, if if you're really in a lot of pain and 
The concept of waiting several weeks to see the outcome of the procedure is just one you can't bear. It's really not unreasonable at that point to get a surgical opinion and see if you can move up the timeline of your recovery. All right, so that has been a really good breakdown so far. Uh, One more question that I get quite a bit from docs and patients, and I want your thoughts on, is the idea of how many injections do you really do when you present with a problem? There's historically been this quote-unquote series of three, and that has been somewhat modified by the literature, but also insurance coverage. So there are a lot of factors that play a role in determining how many injections a patient should consider before they determine if the injections have really worked for them or not. What's your take on this, Turtle? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it, you're right. Well, first off, I'm, the, the, the series of three, for multiple reasons, has fallen out of favor, and I'm, I'm glad it has. Uh, I think we apply a little more common sense now in terms of when or if and the timing of repeated injections and how many. And it does, um, how many you do, how often you do them also matters on what's all, what's our, our, our alternative. Meaning if somebody is having this acute disc herniation and the alternative is a, you know, again, quote, relatively minor surgery in terms of minimally invasive, then you might not do many injections if you, if the first one or two is an offering significant relief. Uh, whereas if the patient, surgical alternative is is non-existent or unacceptable. So it's a it's an elderly patient that would need a, a massive reconstructive surgery that 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 they may or may not survive because of their medical comorbidities. And we're probably going to do m- more injections uh, over a longer period of time, even if they're not home runs, if they're helping at all, because they might not be a great option, but they might be our best option still. So I still think the you know the sort of series of, of three I rarely do I, I do have a relatively low threshold for a second injection if the if if the patient gets a positive response to the first one uh, so if they get you know seventy percent relief or fifty percent relief and it, it, it's short lived or it starts coming back four to six weeks then it makes sense to repeat an injection if you know you do that second injection and again it's just a few weeks of relief I have a hard time justifying the third one. But if you do that second injection and now you got four or five months of relief, then you may consider that third one at, at, at that point. Yeah, I really like that approach. And that's very similar to the approach that I adopt for my patients. I think the days of doctors giving patients five to 10 epidural injections in a calendar year are hopefully over and behind us because I don't think it serves anyone uh, with that approach. So mm-hmm. it's nice no, to see. I agree. Well. Yeah. And, th- and that's the, uh, and the other part is I'll say this to patients a lot is, the, um, you know, and it's, you talk about insurance company and then we worry about steroid exposure about how often we do them. But the reality is if you need five to six to seven or eight epidural steroid injections in a year, they're not working very well. And, and then you should, we should see, we should seek other treatment for that reason, regardless of any insurance approval or potential overexposure to steroids. Yes, folks, let common sense rule the day. Um, really, really think for yourself as you consider these treatment options. So we've done a really good job today of breaking down epidural steroid injections in the low back, uh, but that's not all turtle. I know that you do and offer your patients, your, you provide really comprehensive spine care. Uh, in particular, when epidurals aren't helping, what are some of the other options that you can discuss or offer uh, from an interventional perspective, uh, ones that are emerging that you want to share with the patients? Uh, sure. There's um, 
Well, when we come back to back pain, it, it always also, you know, back pain is a symptom. So it comes down to what, what is causing that symptom? What is the, what is the pain generator? And oftentimes it, it, it's the disc can certainly cause chronic back pain and as well as the set joints, which are the small joints kind of on the back part of the spine. And you can inject those joints similar with, with steroids, similar that we discussed with epidural steroid injections. There's also a procedure called radiofrequency ablation, which can target those joints a little bit more definitively. The second part is where there's some exciting new things that have happened in, in terms of what in the past we have called discogenic pain, which is you know, back pain with the disc itself causing the pain. And this is that typical uh, degenerative disc disease pain. It, it tends to be back pain that it just kind of stays in your back. It's kind of this nebulous pain that's worse with sitting or driving or being at your desk for too long. Bending and twisting tends to be difficult as well. And the exciting new thing, for the longest time, we thought of that as the disc causing the pain. And, and certainly it still plays a role. But the newer uh, research has shown that perhaps it's the bone where the disc interacts with the bone and that inflammatory process that happens that's causing the pain. And this is where a new procedure called Intercept, I-N-T-R-A-S-E-P-T, has been, it's just been commercialized in the last 12 to 14 months. And it is where you can ablate, essentially, heat up and burn the nerve that supplies that end plate where it interacts with the disc and relieve back pain that way. And so in our little nerdy world, it was really a big leap forward. And it wasn't just a new way to treat an old problem. It was a new way to think about an old problem or a new way to think what was causing that old problem that led to this bit of a breakthrough. It's really fascinating. I I think it could be a potential game changer. I know you've uh, really just dipped your toe in the water on this recently and had some exciting results so far. It's something that I think I personally am going to watch the evolving research on, and uh, and see if it see if it really works. You know, historically, we've been searching in the spine world for the holy grail for disc related pain. I mean, even a few years ago, there was the idea that uh, is it infectious? Should we put everyone on antibiotics? You know, every few years there's something new and evolving. But this this approach makes sense to me from an anatomic perspective. It's consistent with how we try and localize the pain generator. So. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And, and if you're listening out there, just kind of keep your uh, keep your ears open and, and listen for this evolving technology. The other thing that I know you do is you've done some injections into the disc of platelet-rich plasma, and then you also are rather involved with research into other what we call biologic or regenerative agents for back pain. Can you share with our listeners your experience with some of the clinical trials that you've taken part in in investigating some of these offerings? Uh, absolutely. I'd love to. The in one just quick o- overview is you know the, the regenerative medicine space is broad and, and very popular right now. Um, the two broad categories are autogalous materials, which is basically harvesting some sort of cells from the person themselves and injecting them back into it. And then there's more of the biologics that are manufactured. And what I'm going to discuss is the more manufactured. So these are kind of commercially produced materials. And, and because they are manufactured, they're subject to FDA approval. And so where, where we've been involved with them is on the study level. We have been involved in, with three different companies for three different studies over the last seven years, each one with a little different take on where the cells came from. Uh, the first one was actually, wasn't true stem cells. They were, they were juvenile 
chondrocytes, which are cartilage cells, which is what the disc is, material is made of. So the idea was to inject these these, these sort of infant-like uh, cartilage cells into a degenerative disc to see if they regenerate. Uh, they had some initial encouraging results in their pilot study of 10 or 12 patients. The larger study has not been published, which usually means there was not great results. The second one we were involved in was uh, adult. They were true stem cells that were harvested from adult bone marrow and then proliferated in the lab. And that study has been completed for a couple of years now, had some initial positive results as well, and still pending any sort of final publication. The third one that we're involved with was actually just closed last week. And is so there's no results yet or even preliminary results to, to discuss. But their approach was unique because some of the uh, theories on why the initial forays in the stem cells in the disc weren't successful was that, you know, we our, the hope and perhaps thought was if you put a stem cell into a disc space, it knows to become a disc. And when that wasn't as successful as, as anticipated, the next phase was do we need to somehow program these cells so they know to become a disc? And this most recent study that I referred to, the third one that we just completed participation in, they were able to take cadaver disc cells and then retro-engineer them back to the stem cell state. So theoretically, these cells have already been a disc and know how to become a disc. So that is why uh, you know, the hope that this time would be different and, and, and more successful. I think the broader point, other than the, and not as important as the details I just shared, is that it's progressing and progressing rapidly. Each new generation of, of stem cells for the disc is a little thinking about it a little bit differently, learning from the last iteration and trying to push it forward. So I, it's a very encouraging. I think it's a, we will get there, but we are not there yet. So this is one of those, unless you are, you know, really, you want to be at the tip of the spear. You kind of let things play out a little bit to see what kind of bubbles to the top is the most effective and safe. That's fascinating technology that you're describing there. And very excited that there are a lot of people smarter than me that are working on this for my patients. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're not kidding. Uh, you know, what, what do you think, what makes it challenging? What about the disc itself makes it challenging to heal? What, what do you think patients should know about the disc that we kind of struggle with? The, the, the two big things that I think of is one, it has a poor blood supply. So it just doesn't get the nutrients it needs to heal. So when we cut our cells, the blood delivers all these repair type cells to that area and heals the skin. Uh, and the disc just does not have a good blood supply. So it doesn't get the cells to begin with and get, it gets the nutrients it needs to heal. The second part is it's under a lot of stress. I mean, biomechanically, you know, us being upright, there's a lot of strain on the on the lower back. And so anything we do is going to put um, strain on it and continue to damage it. So even as a, if a disc is injured and has the potential to heal, we are consistently kind of micro-injuring it without with daily activities. I mean, getting out of bed, putting on your shoes, you know, pulling on your socks. And so those there's a lot of kind of inherent things that the disc space has working against it. Those are some terrific tips. I think it's useful for people to understand why treating degenerative disc disease can be so challenging. And then we're going to close today's interview with Turtle, just getting into a few of his personal health habits. And we'll get to those questions right after this break. 
On today's Health Matter segment, I want to talk briefly about a vitamin that is near and dear to my heart, and that is vitamin D. And vitamin D has an exploding amount of research over the last decade. And the more we learn about vitamin D, the more I'm convinced it is essential to maintaining our health. And in particular, I discuss with my patients their role of vitamin D and their pain, at least a potential role. And I want to share with you a research article that was published in May of 2019 in the Frontiers in Pharmacology Journal. And the title of the article is The Preoperative Supplementation with Vitamin D Attenuated Pain Intensity and Reduced the Level of Pro-Inflammatory Markers in Patients After Posterior Lumbar Inner Body Fusion. So that's a lot there. So essentially what they're saying here in this article is they researched the role of vitamin D and back pain for patients that had undergone lumbar fusion stabilization surgery. And the way they kind of broke it down was they divided individuals into two different groups. Both groups did receive rehabilitation exercise after their surgery. One group received 3,200 international units of vitamin D a day for five weeks. And then the other group received a placebo of vegetable oil. Um, and then just kind of tracked their outcome pain scores after the surgery. Now, they did measure the vitamin D levels in the blood preoperatively. Vitamin D in this country, the recommendation is typically if you're over 20 nanograms per cc, you're considered to be low normal. And in this study, what they did is they found preoperatively the Baseline level was about 25 for most, and then they supplemented with roughly 3,000 units of vitamin D for five weeks, and the levels rose basically to 50 or doubled. And they found a pretty strong correlation with the reduction in pain in the group that had the vitamin D supplementation versus the group that did not. So a little background on vitamin D. If you're not familiar, vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. And it's synthesized from precursors in your skin after you're exposed to UVB radiation from the sun. And there are vitamin D receptors really throughout the body. And in particular, there are vitamin D receptors in your muscles and in your tendons and also certainly along the the bone. So there are research articles that suggest when you're deficient in vitamin D that you'll have low-grade swelling in the periosteum or covering of your bone. So that was an original thought put out there as to why you could have back pain or chronic low back pain with low vitamin D. But we also now know that there's a strong correlation between low vitamin D and muscle weakness, as well as gait disturbance. Why is that so? Well, vitamin D and the vitamin D receptors really control a lot of different processes in our body, in particular, a process of inflammation. So in this study, they also looked at pre- and post-levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So these are immune cells in our body that are elevated during inflammation. They also measured a protein called C-reactive protein, which is another marker of inflammation. Many of you may have that checked as you're doing your annual physicals to look for evidence of heart disease. So what they found in a nutshell is that the individuals that were supplemented with vitamin D prior to surgery had lower levels of CRP, and lower levels of inflammatory cytokines afterwards. So that's to keep it simple. I think it's a very powerful bit of information and one that you should consider discussing with your doctor. 
do you get your vitamin D levels checked? I tend to offer it with my patients, although nowadays, many times, the vitamin D profiles are rolled into your annual physical. So make sure you check with your insurance plan and see how many times uh, per year they will cover that. It appears when I scour the musculoskeletal research that an optimal level would be closer to 50 nanograms per cc. And there are certainly seasonal fluctuations in your vitamin D level. Certainly as you transition into winter, the levels are going to be the lowest. And that's another rabbit hole that we can explore at some other point in terms of the correlation with low vitamin D and our increased incidence for illness during the wintertime. But as it pertains to this podcast and my passion for helping to reduce low back pain and educate you on how to take care of your spine, I think vitamin D has to have a role in your considerations. Now, one word of caution, vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. And what that means is it can store in your fat cells. You don't necessarily excrete it through your urine like some of the B vitamins. So there can be a level of risk of vitamin D toxicity, although it's quite rare and there are very few case reports in the medical literature on it. You do not necessarily want to go to your drugstore and pick up a bottle of vitamin D and treat yourself. I think if this is something you want to explore, you need to talk with your physician and get your level checked. They will prescribe a recommended dose, and I always recommend using vitamin D3 versus vitamin D2. It's just more physiologically active. And then you should likely have your level rechecked in two to three months and kind of monitor it that way. So add that to your toolbox. Vitamin D, what's your status? What's your number? How is your low back pain? If you have mysterious low back pain or low back pain that no one can really explain, consider, do you have a vitamin D deficiency or insufficiency? And perhaps as you investigate that, it might shed some light on your pain and lead to less pain overall. So I hope you take this under consideration as you consider all of your health matters. And welcome back now. We are wrapping up our interview today with Dr. Andrew Sumich on all things spinal injection related. He actually just broke down the entire topic in a way that is very useful and very informative. And I know he's got to run, but I want to get a few personal health habit tips from Turtle. Uh, I know he values his health and fitness and wellness very much. And as you know, on this podcast, I'm all about that. So Turtle, you see probably close to 150 patients a week. And I know that's very demanding. Can you share with our listeners your typical approach to maintain your nutrition, exercise, and wellness? Well, sure. I think first of all, it's a, it's a work in progress and evolving. But the biggest thing I think I have going for me is I consciously try to do it. I'm not always successful, uh, but it, it is, it is um, a, a deliberate a habit of mine to try to take care of myself. Um, exercise has always come easy for me. I've, I've been active since since high school and got into the habit of working out. It's evolved in the in the last decade or so as I've uh, squarely reached middle age. But I'll I'll do a lot more body weight type exercises two to three times a week. I'll go to a yoga class at least once a week, um, typically Wednesday mornings and you know, on the weekends just kind of stay active with the kids, walk the dog, that kind of thing. So I'm usually doing true workouts at least four days a week and being active in my other, you know, other days. I also try to eat good and I'm successful most of the time. I cheat on the weekends a little bit, but it's typically, you know, I've not cut out all meat, but eating less meat than I used to, more fish, lots of, you know, healthy vegetables, and then still the occasional Hershey's bar, which is a weekend. And then the 
and then I, I, I meditate regularly. I mean, pretty much daily, unless there's a, I try and make time to do it. Uh, it works best for me in the morning. At least it seems to work best for me in the morning. And I, I've found that practice in the last two or three years to be very beneficial and really uh, altering my sort of overall baselining uh, stress level quite a bit. What's kind of your approach to the meditation? Uh, I prefer guided meditations. Uh, I have an app uh, that I use called Insight Timer that has uh, three or four morning meditations that are guided meditations that I'll use. It usually has a beginning of uh, breathing exercises. And then towards the end, they'll do some uh, affirmations, which I have really grown to like and uh, helped kind of found the ones that kinda, that I, I need throughout the day that I can call back on. If I don't have time to do, they're usually between 20 and 10 and 12 minutes. If I wake up a little late or don't have time to do it or just hit the ground running, I'll, I'll, I'll just take a few minutes in the car or before the first patient. And it might only be, you know, 45 seconds, but just a few breaths and a couple of mantras that I'll say to myself to kind of just kind of center and, and, and hopefully carry it throughout the day. Yeah. So take home points there is number one, be intentional. I don't think it matters quite as much what your routine looks like at home, but as Turtle said, he's very intentional about his health and fitness. And then, you know, I'm a big fan of meditation as I've talked about before. Um, I'm currently just starting the Andrew Weil Integrative Medicine Fellowship and we just finished our module on meditation and the medical benefits are outstanding now and, and very well established. So, all right, I want to close with the most important question of the day, Turtle. How far do you think my University of Dayton Flyers can go in the upcoming NCAA tournament as they are now up to number five in the country in men's basketball? I think they lose in the final four national semifinals. Oh, okay. I will take that. I will not delete this episode. You are, you are safe. You are safe. <laughs> All right, my friend, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, go over this information with us and the listeners. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, uh, you know, I look forward to continue to work with you on exploring these new techniques for our patients. So thank you again, Turtle. Thanks, Ajiba. It was great. I'm glad you're doing this and thanks for letting me participate. All right, buddy. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.